everyone, and welcome to issue 14 of Hey, That's Comics. As always, I am your host, Gary Webb. Right here at the top, I want to apologize for the delay in this issue, but as I mentioned in the opening for Volume 1 of Comic Club Monthly, things are a bit rough at home at the moment. She's in a bad spot, still in the hospital, which means I have a lot of time on my hands for this, but I'm finding it very hard to focus with worrying about her being strong for my two kids who already struggle daily with their disabilities while trying to figure out how to keep things going with me unable to work. It's overwhelming at times, but when I can focus, this is the diversion that I was hoping it would be when I started this, and I want to thank each and every one of you out there listening. Still, no one's reaching out, but our numbers are growing, which is a much-needed boost in these dark times. Even if you don't feel inclined to reach out, you should follow at least the Twitter, if you're not already, to see the art that I'm posting there for each episode, as I think it's pretty cool. Comic Club monthly releases even get trailers at this point. Now, I'm sorry for starting out on such a down note, but I wanted you to understand my situation. Be prepared just in case I happen to miss release. That all said, let's move on to what we're all here for. This week, we're going to begin our look at DC's 52. I say begin because as I started to put this together, I realized I wasn't going to be able to meet my self-set Friday deadline. There's a lot of jumping around with a lot of things to keep track of, so I'm expecting these next two episodes are going to be long as it is. I felt like I cheated a bit dropping Volume 1 of Comic Club Monthly, so I really wanted to get some new content out this week. Now, that said, I plan on working through the weekend in order to drop the second half come Monday. After that, we should be going back to our regular schedule and format. This little run into the Strictly Comic Club territory was a bit of an experiment to try to see both what you thought of the format and also as a potential trial for what may be an eventuality. At this point, if it wasn't for friends letting me read their books, the weekly poll would be awfully smilim right now. So, that being said, I would like to hear your thoughts on what you want out of this, so go ahead and reach out at Hey That's Comics on Instagram or Twitter. You can email me at HeyThat'sComics at Outlook.com. Or you can use that link in the show notes to send me an audio message to play on air and incorporate it right here into the show. Now, given how I started this week, I'm going to make an exception to my general rule of not mentioning the other link that's down there in the notes where you can donate to the show to help me improve it. Now, don't feel that there's any sort of pressure to do so, but I just thought I should put it out there. I don't mention it often, but it is always there. Thanks again for coming to get down and nerdy with me. And with that, let's get into our only segment this week with the Comic Club. The Comic Club. Following Infinite Crisis, which we looked at in issue 13, the DC Universe as a whole jumped forward to a year later, picking up the narrative threads from there, but there was an outlier. The missing year, a time without the Trinity, and led to a number of shifts in the ongoings, and with this week's focus on 52, they filled in the blanks of the gap, giving us this phenomenal weekly recap of how the world coped in the absence of its greatest champions. The interweaving tale was brought to us by the biggest names at the time at DC with Jeff Johns, Grant Morrison, Mark Wade, and Greg Rucka using the unique hook of telling the story in real time shined a light on the lesser profile heroes handling some universe-altering events. We open on the world still reeling from the crisis, particularly the devastation left in the wake of the Secret Society's massive strike on the world. Here we pause briefly on most of our main characters for the coming year. 
Ralph Dibney is still reeling from the traumatic events of identity crisis, having withdrawn even further from his comrades. His mental state is very much in question as he cradles the gun while vaguely having a phone call with Beatrice, the former leaguer fire, where they discuss the dead and missing. John Henry Irons, the man who took up the mantle of the fallen Superman after his death, Steele, is busy working on the rescue effort while former GCPD detective Renee Montoya is desperately seeking answers in the bottom of a bottle following the death of her partner Crispus Allen. We round out our initial focuses with Booster Gold, who, as I mentioned in the last club, has a rather dubious record as a hero as he grandstands while taking down the villain Mammoth, pausing, I might add, to promote Solder Cola, which he's sponsored by. In these heroes lies the future of the DCU, which is rather worrying, though, as outside of Steel, they're all horribly broken at this point in some way, and even he's in for some rather emotionally challenging times. Now, from here, rather than bouncing back and forth like they do through all the plots, every issue, I'm going to kind of ignore the issue breaks and hop around as it makes sense to me. Now, as I mentioned, Ralph left me a little worried with that gun in hand, and we rejoined him, displaced now due to the destruction, living in a motel. Given up in despair, he places the gun in his mouth, on the cusp of pulling the trigger, when a voice message plays, informing him that a message was written on Sue's tombstone. At the cemetery, gone full detective mode at this desecration of Sue's grave, which was clearly a message to him. Ralph finds an inverted at Superman S shield. Now, if you're a regular reader or at least, you know, have seen the DCEU movies, you might know that the standard shield is more of it than an S, but is in fact the Kryptonian symbol for hope. What fewer people know is that when flipped upside down, it becomes the symbol for resurrection, which ends up leading to Cassie Sandsmark and the cult of Connor. Following his, the death of Superboy, in his attempt to take down Alexander's Tower in Infinite Crisis, much like what happened following the death of Superman, a cult sprang up, roiding his resurrection, and his girlfriend, Wonder Girl, latched right on. She and a few members submerge Ralph into the waters of Memnon, which is supposed to grant visions of those lost. But as he struggles back up to the surface, he finds them gone, along with his wedding ring from his hand. Irons, on the other hand, is dealing with his niece Natasha, who's decided to abandon the rescue effort to go meet up with the Teen Titans. He struggles to make her understand how he sees her priorities, but she is not having it and attempts to storm off when he deactivates her armor with an admonishment to grow up as he leaves her basically stranded on the rooftop. Now, as a father of two teenagers, I get the inclination to go that route, but it's going to come back to bite him in the end. We then stop briefly in Gotham where we see that they discover a body appearing to be one Lex Luthor. Now, if you remember where Crisis ended, you probably see where that part's going. Another argument over Natasha's inability to put in the work required, even on tasks that she doesn't want to do, is interrupted by a call from Star Lab, seeking his help to identify the body. They perform the autopsy and find a discrepancy as the body is wearing contact lenses to hide that it's a Lex from another world when in walks the man himself, former President Luther, pinning everything horrible that he had done that led to his lost presidency at the feet of this his doppelganger. Yet another classic evasion by the mastermind himself, and as John has no proof to the contrary, he's forced to watch it all happen. At home, John becomes violently sick, seeing visions of himself, casting his own self-doubts back upon him as his body starts to smoke, leading to his equipment exploding in a brutal burst of power. 
While all this is going on, Black Adam is over in Kandak, refocusing his goals. In his zeal to protect the homeland, he turned his back to the rest of the globe, which had almost led to its destruction during Infinite Crisis. That was a mistake, and it's up to them to teach the world how to handle such things. He's interrupted by an attempted suicide bomber who he wastes no time neutralizing and rips his arm off to get him in the moot right mind to answer his questions. We pause to see Dr. Savannah abducted from his lab as Mr. Mind, the mind-controlling worm, watches while trapped in a jar. Later, when Power Girl is attempting to apprehend Terror Man, they cross over into Kandak airspace where they're immediately interrupted by Adam, who tells her and warns the others, cross his borders and he will not hesitate to enforce his will upon the violators. He's paid a visit by Energain, a criminal organization that loves to make use of metahumans. They offer him riches and women in exchange for being allowed to operate inside his borders. Things turn south as the woman that they are offering struggles and Noose begins to choke her, prompting Adam to refuse the alliance, killing both men. This is a very proactive Adam, who goes on then to call a press conference where he rips Terra Man in half on camera as a warning that people like him don't deserve to live. Later, Lanterns Jordan and Stuart end up in a battle with, China, with China's heroes the Great Ten, who resent their presence in their land, and the battle is worsened as China sides with Adam, who comes to aid his new allies in defending their sovereignty. Eventually, our two lanterns are forced into retreating to Russia as Adam's ideas grow stronger. At a service to honor the fallen at Memorial Park in Metropolis, Booster joins the assembled heroes, ready for a monumental moment in history as a rejuvenated Bruce, Clark, and Diana make a historical speech and form the new Justice League. But wait a second, you might say. This is the year without the Trinity. That doesn't make sense with where this story's brought us. And it turns out you'd be right, as the appointed time passes and Booster's robot buddy Skeets has a meltdown as he tries to make sense of this historical inaccuracy. Booster wigs out, accidentally busting Clark Kent's nose as Kent tries to assure him that no, they are not coming. The Trinity does cameo a couple times throughout the series, but it's pretty few and far between. There aren't a whole lot of people who can do much with a 25th century robot, so Boost turns to Dr. Will Magnus, a genius whose biggest claim to fame is having created the Metal Men, but despite his efforts, he can't find an explanation for the errors. As they leave, they drop him off at the Haven Institute, where his former mentor, Dr. T.O. Morrow, is being held. Now, Morrow is a long-standing Justice League bad guy. He is big known for creating sentient robots and such that, you know, battle the league. But at one point, he was the mentor in Robox to Dr. Magnus, which is why there's still a bond there. And this, this sets up the whole relationship, which will be important later, as Morrow is starting to piece together that someone's going around kidnapping the mad scientists of the DCU. Despite turning up nothing, we find that Skeet's memory is still not lining up as more errors ensue, including one resulting in hundreds dead from a mixed-up flight number. Later, yet another attempt to get himself over with the public is followed with him signing to a brand new endorsement with a company that Skeets assures him is sure to on the rise, when unfortunately its CEO gets arrested for fraud. Frustrated, Booster sets out to find Rip Hunter, who you might know if you're familiar with Legends of Tomorrow. He's a man whose main drive is to preserve the timeline, at least, you know, in this incarnation. Meanwhile, stumbling home from the bar, Renee grabs yet another bottle while she wallows in depression over both her partner's murder as well as the flame out of yet another relationship, when she's blinded by a light shining through her upper story window, as the bat signal has been positioned to shine a question mark at her, guided by the hand of Vic Sage, the question. 
Now, the question is uh, something of a lesser-known hero. He's one of the ones that DC got when they acquired Charlton Comics back in the 80s. And actually, he was originally cast in the role of Rorschach before the editorial ended up telling Alan Moore that no, he couldn't use him. Now, like his counterpart, he's a powerless detective with a mask that essentially makes his face disappear. But he's much less crazed than Rorschach is. He's going to be something along the lines of something of a spirit guy for Renee on her steep climb to redemption she's about to undergo, so we'll be seeing a lot of him going forward. Like later on, when he sneaks into her apartment and is raised in the arms of a passing acquaintance that she had met from the bar. Needless to say, our former cop responds as you'd expect to find a faceless stranger in her apartment in the middle of the night, opening fire before he escapes, leaving behind a mysterious address prompting her to end the night's festivities. She has a clue and is compelled to look into it despite her current state. At 520 Kane Street, she finds an abandoned building and is again approached by the question as he tosses her a roll of $100 bills, hiring her to stake the place out. Weeks go by with absolutely no action at all as Renee is questioning why she's doing this when Vic pops up in her back seat, first lecturing her a bit about smoking before guaranteeing that the time is near. Just wait a little bit longer. As the end of her time does in fact draw near, she dozes off, almost missing the moment when somebody finally enters the building. She's quickly joined inside by the question as their quarry is vanished without a trace. In their search, they tumble down a trap door and are faced by a huge creature with a passing resemblance to Killer Croc, who goes on the offensive. Her guns and his martial arts are no use against the beast when Montoya finds the contents of a crate it had chucked at her, turns out to have an all sorts of fancy gun inside that vaporizes the creature. It's here as we close out week four that the remainder of the team that was out in space to try and contain the cosmic disturbances from Alex messing with reality return home via Zeta Beam teleportation, but they're in a bad shape. Hot Girl has taken on giant man proportions, while others have basically been splinched, you know, kind of like Helen and Harry Potter, resulting in some being fused together, or like in Alan Scott's case, he was missing an eye. It's not pretty, and it will take some time to undo, but there are others who are even worse off, as we see Alan perform the dreaded act of having to go to Animal Man's family to inform them that he was lost in the effort. And in a rather insightful moment from Alan and his wife, she just carries on with a note that we've been through this hundreds of times before. Until I've seen the body, he's just missing. He'll be back. At Haven, we then see yet another visit from Magnus, but this one ends on a more ominous note as we see a shadowy figure watching them both with great interest. His name cleared, Lex makes the astonishing announcement that he's cracked the code and can synthesize the metagene. Needless to say, Steel finds this to be distressing news, but he's called to help with those injured in the Zeta transfer, where we see the normally unflappable Alan Scott struggling to deal with the disastrous results of the accident. They're going over how the flux and energy distorted the wave, apparently killing Adam Strange, Animal Man, and Starfire, while definitely ripping the android Red Tornado to pieces. They're interrupted when the Titan, Mal Duncan, who I'm not positive what alias he's currently going by at this point, he goes into cardiac arrest before being zapped by steel while the piece of red tornado that is lodged in his chest blasts out the number 52 over and over again, shattering the hospital's windows. We pick back up a few days later with Nat refusing to back down now, making her own armor, which John allows, and as he's watching the news talk about Luther's new breakthrough, his chest goes red hot before turning into actual steel before his stunned eyes. Rushing to his friends at Star Labs, he undergoes testing, which determines that he's not just turning into steel, he's turning into stainless steel. 
That cinches it for him as he realizes Luther must have injected him with his new tech, and this is all him mocking him. Arriving back home, John comes home to find Nat, frustrated at that pace of her work, who just unloads on him. She sees his changing body and found the brochures about Luther's process that John had had for research and assumes that he's just a hypocrite before storming out in a rage. Her next step is exactly what you'd expect as she tries to get into Luther's program, having difficulties at first before Lex recognizes her and brings her in just to spite John and loads her up with a nice package of powers. Eventually, Iron storms into one of Lex's parties, demanding to know where she is, and proceeds to get knocked around by his own niece, who eventually, almost casually, hurls him into a river. Captain Maggie Sawyer pays Renee a visit, trying to find out more about what happened in the building, but Renee will only share so much before Sawyer leaves with a warning that the hammer will come down if something like this happens again. Weeks pass with Renee still having no contact with Vic, but despite her annoyance, she can't stop picking at the mystery of the warehouse. She keeps hitting a wall. As is usually the case, however, it's when she's exasperated and ready to give up that she realizes she does have a lead to follow up. The owners of the building that just so happen to include her former lover, Kate Kane. The meeting is a roller coaster of emotions as they flash from anger to longing before they separate angrily with Kate reluctantly agreeing that she will look into the building for her. At a lesbian bar, she's approached by a guy who seems oblivious to the situation as he needles her a bit before admitting that he's the question, Vic, though most people call him Charlie. Now we're going to start to really develop their relationship, which is definitely one of the high points of this series. As they walk down the street, bantering back and forth, we see a figure watching from the rooftops that's revealed to be the debuting Batwoman, at least the modern incarnation of her. Another uncomfortable meeting with Kate ensues where they learn who rented the building, following which Charlie lances the wound that's really at the core of Renee's mystery. It's not her fault that Alan died, nor that his killer walked. She did good, which is really the root of her problem. She's not healed by any means, but the process has begun. While she wrestles with this, Charlie digs into their target, which turns out to be a branch of inner game, which they decide that they're going to have to break into their offices to uncover the truth as a pointy-eared figure watches on. They get in and begin to overhear a discussion about Kandak when they're found out by the, one of the guards. Their leader, Whisperer Adair, leaves them to die at the hands of her thugs who morph into giant animal-like creatures preparing to end them. That's when in crashes Batwoman who, amidst taking down the creatures, stops Renee from using a gun. She is a bat after all. As Batwoman springs back into the night, Renee is left with a strong suspicion as to who she is. Renee's attempt to loop Maggie into what they found explodes in her face as Sawyer blames her for them banishing in the chaos. The heavens open up on her with rain as she walks home to find Charlie meditating in the nude in the middle of her living room floor. They're running out of ideas, and after some prompting, Charlie comes out of his trance and states the obvious. They need to go to conduct. Now at this point, we're going to pick up on another thread here as we join the missing animal man on what appears to be an alien paradise world where he's trapped with Starfire and a blinded Adam Strange. Buddy is clearly worried about what's happening on Earth, both with his family and the larger battle that they had left behind, while Coriander revels in paradise. They're not without hope, though, as the blind Adam Strange works to repair the ship to get them home, but the clock is ticking as Buddy's enhanced senses are telling him there's a serpent in paradise. Time passes, and we see Adam alone working on the problem of saving them, as Buddy and Corey seem to be losing themselves more and more as they eat the strange fruits that grow in abundance around them. With mounting frustration, Adam finally snaps, calling them on it, and seems to be getting through as Starfighter goes off to think for a while. 
Her attempt is short-lived, though, as a giant blade slams through the ground in front of her as the serpent strikes. I mean, it's not an actual serpent. It's a giant member of the new gods named Devilence, the Pursuer. I'm just running with the analogy here. Adam and Buddy stumble upon Starfire in their search, trapped in a net, and, like blind men, end up trapped just as she is. It's not much of a rescue, as now they're all in Devilence's clutches. They hang upside down in his camp, learning that he had prepared this entire place to trap them after they had seen the secrets of the universe. It's knowledge belonging only to the gods. Eventually, they manage to get their wits about him and combine their abilities, ensnaring him in his own traps and escaping with the means to get their ship going. Man, does Booster make it hard to get behind him here, which I mean, I guess is the point of this part of his arc, as we see he's foiled a bombing attempt by the armored villain Manthrax, who, in reality, is an actor that Gold hired to stage the entire thing to raise his profile. With Skeet's historical records being out of whack, what was he supposed to do? Actually patrol and potentially have to fight away from an audience? He's got sponsors to think about. Following that, it's finally off to Rip Hunter, Skeet's finally having tracked his last known location. Arriving at Hunter's Bunker in Arizona, Skeets manages to hack his way in, but is forced to remain to keep the door open as Michael heads down the stairs on his own. In its depths, he finds an insane amount of charts and diagrams, all under the label of Time is Broken. The walls themselves are covered in crazed writing, but he finds a spot where it says, It's all his fault, with arrows pointing at pictures of Booster himself. Here, we get our first mingling of main characters as we rejoin Booster on the phone with an unhappy Manthrax whose check is bounced. He's threatening to come out with the truth when it's interrupted by our stretchy sleuth, Ralph Dimney, paying a visit. He's on the hunt for the cult, and the trail has led him here to Metropolis. Boost, as usual, is too preoccupied with his own thing and has to blow him off. He's got a disaster to avert. That's when Ralph makes the connection. This is all history. Why didn't Booster warn him about Sue? He flies into a rage momentarily before letting go in resignation. This is just who Booster is. You can't expect more, which really gets under his skin. They're interrupted by an explosion outside LexCorp Tower, where a tanker a jackknife. Booster deals with that easily and is being interviewed by Lois Lane after the fact when Manthrax shows up to expose their deceit. Assaulted by a barrage of questions, things get even worse for Gold when Demi unloads on him and on TVs around the world. Following his disgrace, things grow even worse as a new superhero, Supernova, has come on the scene and is stealing the hearts and minds of the people of Metropolis. We transition then to Clark Kent, getting the riot act from Perry White. Without his abilities, Clark hasn't broken the same stories, affecting the quality of his work, leaving White no choice but to fire him. As Perry is finishing his tirade, Clark plunges out the window, many stories up, but is caught by Supernova, who he'd seen, and proceeds to get an interview. An emergency breaks out, and Nova springs into action with an air of competence, which impresses Clark, which we know is saying something, and it's reflected in the write-up that he does afterward, which absolutely infuriates Booster even more. We then pause again at Haven after Will was given access to Savannah's lab where he found the shed cocoon of Mr. Mind, as both Morrow and Magnus wonder at its significance. Trust me, there is. Ralph then continues his journey, finding himself in Star City alongside Green Arrow, where we get an awesome glimpse of how Ollie's mind works as an owner chases a man stealing diapers, yelling stop the thief, which Ollie does by tripping up the owner. I mean, for God's sakes, he's charging $30 for diapers in the disaster zone. That's thievery. 
But overall, Ali feels helpless in the face of the city's destruction, and Ralph begins prompting him to greater things, seeding Ali's eventual run for mayor, but he's not ready for that step yet. So instead, they turn towards Ralph's hunt, which leads them to another abandoned cult location. They're gone, and it's when Ralph explains that they worship resurrection that he turns a wandering eye towards the not-so-long-ago-dead Green Arrow. Now, his next move isn't exactly a shining moment for him as he ambushes three members of the cult looking for leads. He's desperate and wild and only being brought to his senses upon realizing that he's attacking children. It's a clear sign of just how consumed he's become by all of this. Understandable given the last few months, but his hunt is again diverted by a call that his storage unit had been broken into. He arrives there to find the cult symbol is again painted on the damaged door, but he sees nothing missing at first glance. We, however, then cut to Cassie and the cult, surrounding a table with a wicker effigy of a human dressed in Sue's clothes and wearing the wedding band they'd taken from Ralph's finger. He does eventually pull enough clues together to track down Cassie at her apartment for a confrontation. There she tells him how their leader, Devon, had discovered the secret to resurrection, but wanted to try first with another subject, and Ralph had provided exactly what they needed. But they figured he wouldn't be willing. And it's at this point that Ralph says that they had had it all wrong. With this chance on offer, all they had to do was ask. Adam's having a meeting with the meta representatives from his coalition's member nations, which gets interrupted by the woman prisoner who attempts to escape and spits in Adam's face when he, she's recaptured. It's a bold move, and not many in the world would dare to do it. And it's later after this that as Adam confronts her over her actions that she begins to pierce his wall of self-righteousness as she lays bare just how barbaric his approach truly is. As time moves on, you really see the impact that Adriana Tomas is having on Adam as he tries to get his people to move past the reverence that he's actually always kind of insisted on. She's bringing him out into the people to see how they live their lives. I mean, he had clearly forgotten that in the centuries of life. Inspired by the past she's illuminating for him, he makes a bold step, taking her to the Rock of Eternity and its new guardian Billy Batson, Shazam. Now, you might recall that he had crashed to Earth during Infinite Crisis, raving that the Spectre had killed the Great Wizard who guarded the Rock of Eternity. And, well, I mean, it's true, and now Billy finds himself as the Guardian, which is a change that he's struggling to adapt to. Outside of the pressures and stuff inherent in the situation, he's also there guarding the attorney, trapped by the seven deadly sins who are constantly whispering at him to keep him on edge, playing with his mind a bit. He sees their approach and wonders if Adam has come yet again for another fight, but instead, Adam's here because he wants to follow Billy's lead and share his power, gifting part of it to Adriana. At first, she's frightened at the prospect. She's seen the horrors the powerful men have wrought throughout her whole life, but between Billy and Adam, she eventually accepts the offer, gaining the power of Isis. Empowered now and attuned with nature, they agree to make the world a better place together after she rescues her brother. They then move beyond their borders, freeing children's slaves from those that stole them, becoming heroes of the people in the process, but with Adam even pushing on with hope as she falters, saying that they will find her brother Amon. At the Kryptonian resurrection, it's all ready to go with Ralph along for the ride. He didn't come alone, however, as he has Ali, Hal, Metamorpho, and the angel Zariel with him. As Devin begins the ceremony, Ralph is filling them in, and they all agree to help put an end to it when he counters that, no, he didn't bring them to stop them. He brought them here to tell him if they could really do it. That's why he picked the people that he chose, an angel and all the people who had returned from death. 
The ceremony continues as they bring out a large chunk of red kryptonite, blood kryptonite, which they call it, which will supposedly draw a little life essence from each person and impart it onto the chosen vessel. The heroes argue back and forth about their next move, when Hal puts an end to it by placing the entire decision in Ralph's hands. Ever logical, Ralph realizes that the ceremony is a fraud as our heroes move to put an end to it. The cult, with Cassie on their side, put up a fight as the fire spreads, and as Ralph has Devon in his hand, the effigy crawls through the fire, calling Ralph's name with Sue's voice. This is enough to halt him long enough for Cassie to get Devon away, as the place is engulfed in the inferno. The others evacuate the cult members, but Ralph lies on the floor, cradling the Sue. The heroes can't find his body in the aftermath, and we move and move on as we see the crazed Dibney cradling his wicker woman, chanting, try again, try again, try again. On that happy note, we enter issue 14, now one quarter of the way through the run, as we rejoin our detective duo, Renee and Charlie, following through on their plan heading into Kondok. They're on the hunt for inner game, but Adam's presence looms large over anything happening in his domain. They land amidst a citywide celebration honoring Adam and Isis, which was actually one of the few errors in this tightly produced series, as it's actually for an event that hasn't happened just yet. But it will. They manage to track the front company, which leads them to the site of a massacre as somebody has silenced potential leaks by ripping them to shreds. They make a quick search, only finding some empty boxes of rat poison, and as they emerge from the building, they find themselves surrounded by Kondok's authorities. Needless to say, the Kondok prison system is a tad bit rough would definitely be an understatement as the guards drag Renee to the questioning chamber. As they pass Charlie's apparently empty cell, Renee lashes out in a panic over what happened to him, getting into a fight with her guards and putting them down when Charlie makes an appearance. He's in bad shape after the abuses, though, as they struggle to make their escape, ending up on the run wanted for murder, where they spend a week hiding in a shipping container when it hits them. The upcoming wedding, it's Intergain's target. Now, what wedding, you might ask? To answer that, we rejoin Adam, seeking to lighten Isis's mood, brings her to a gorgeous, fertile garden planted by the children they'd rescued in her honor. The emotional moment gets ratcheted up as Adam seizes the opportunity to ask her to be his bride. This is one of the celebration that Renee and Charlie walked into when they landed, so it's a mistake, but it's a fairly minor one, all told. As the ceremony approaches, we see Mary Marvel questioning what she could possibly see in Adam after all of the horrors he's committed, while Billy is trying to calm Adam's nerves. The ceremony is held, with their powers adding a sense of the spectacular to the proceedings, as Renee and Charlie desperately search the crowd for the attack that they're sure is coming. As the vows are being said with an accompanying crack of lightning, they find the bomber, a young girl, and left with no other choice, Renee is forced to gun her down. She's sickened by what she was forced to do, while the newlywed couple manages to look past the missing Tamon and revel in each other's company. It's so weird to see a happy Adam. It's a shame it's not going to last all that long. Later, at a ceremony where Adam was to present medals to Renee and Charlie for saving the people in the crowd, Adam is enraged at the insult of Renee not bothering to be present for the honor. He rips his way into her room with his bare hands to find her not coping well with shooting the girl and has climbed back into her bottle as well as in bed with someone she randomly picked up. He has her by the throat as Renee is urging him to kill her when Charlie and Isis step in, redirecting their anger and anguish at the proper target intergame. We stop briefly on John Henry, who's in a bad place, we find, as the Star Labs doctor he's been working with, Kayla, finds him locked away in the bowels of his base, the Steelworks. He's given an end to despair, having driven his fa only family directly into the arms of Luther, and has thrown himself into crafting a new suit of armor for Nat, despite it being far too late. 
So late, in fact, Natasha is not only working for Lex, but as part of the team that he's assembled, Infinity Inc., and with his media empire, they're playing all the right notes to the public right now as Lex molds them in the direction he seeks. Now, from here on out, we'll be spending more time with Doc Magnus going forward as we join him being somewhat strong-armed by some government types into recreating the Metal Men, but for some reason, he just can't make it work anymore. They're far from pleased as he leaves to yet another meeting with Morrow, narrowly avoiding an attempted escapee from Haven. He arrives to find Morrow has vanished without a trace. Well, except for a letter he left for Will containing some machine codes, which turns out to be the key to bringing his men back to life. I suppose now I should explain what the Metal Men are, as they've been largely absent from the books until recently. Essentially what they are are robotic superheroes, each named for the metal from which they were created. The secret behind their sentience, though, is his development of what are called response meters, which give them life with abilities and personalities unique to each material. Now, if he's not hit rock bottom yet, Booster's getting awfully close as we join him in a flea bag motel doodling mustaches on pictures of Supernova as he rails at Skeets to find him something to put him back on the map. He callously rejects everything Skeets has for him until wondering just how does a nuclear submarine manage to crash into Midtown Metropolis. It's a good question, as he arrives on the scene to see that yes, there is a sub, but they forgot to mention it was on the back of a giant mythic sea creature known as Belasto. Booster makes an attempt, but honestly just makes a bad situation worse when he takes out the power grid during the battle. At this point, in swoops Nova, who blasts the beast with his power, causing it to disappear. This indignity is too much as Gold launches himself at the upstart, who gives back in kind, calling him out for being a billboard, not a hero. Things are escalating when Skeets chimes in that the sub's nuclear core was ruptured and ready to explode. Seeing an opportunity to go big, Boost wastes no time using his suit to lift up, flying it away. As he's screaming that he's back, baby, it goes critical, exploding and taking Michael with it as Nova catches his corpse with the flesh seared right off of his bones. Now don't worry, I haven't forgotten about our heroes that were stuck in space. The ship is repaired as they blast off, finally heading home. Or so they think. They're moving in the right direction, but a run through an asteroid field has left the clock ticking with only a matters of days worth of oxygen remaining. Nowhere near enough for the journey home. They're each struggling to maintain composure under stress when the levels ratchet up another notch as Devilance lives up to his name as the pursuer has tracked them down. He's got them in a precarious position when his inside spell obscuring their view of their savior who turns out to be Lobo the Last Zarnian. You may remember him from our look at Injustice Year One, that he's the badass galactic bounty hunter who rides around on his cosmic motorcycle. Luckily, despite some contrary evidence, when he snatches Starfire's top off to look at her chest, the homicidal maniac isn't going to kill them, as Lobo has found God. Well, a god anyway, and he's now a pacifist, disemboweling a new god aside. In need of help himself, and with the promise of reward on top of it, Lobo hitches their ship to his bike and sets out across space with them in tow. In need, <clears throat> in need of help himself, and with the promise of reward on top of it, Lobo hitches their ship to his bike and sets out across space with them in tow. Himself, and with the promise of reward on top of it, Lobo hitches their ship to his bike and sets out across space with them in tow. Them in tow. Bike and sets out across space with them in tow himself and with the promise of reward on top of it, Lobo hitches their ship to his bike and sets out across space with them in tow. Reward on top of it, Lobo hitches their ship to his bike and sets out across space with them in tow. Bike and sets out across space with them in tow.
promise of reward on top of it, Lobo hitches their ship to his bike and sets out across space with them in tow. With them in tow. With them in tow. To his bike and sets out across space with them in tow. Pacifist. Disemboweling a new god aside. In need, in need of help himself and with the promise of reward on top of it, Lobo hitches their ship to his bike and sets out across space with them in tow. Space with them in tow. With them in tow. With them in tow. Reward on top of it. Lobo hitches their ship to his bike and sets out across space with them in tow. With them in tow. Top of it. Lobo hitches their ship to his bike and sets out across space with them in tow. All pacifist. Disemboweling a new god aside. In need, in need of help himself and with the promise of reward on top of it, Lobo hitches their ship to his bike and sets out across space with them in tow. Reward on top of it. Lobo hitches their ship to his bike and sets out across space with them in tow. With them in tow. Found God. Well, a God anyway, and he's now a pacifist. Disemboweling a new god aside. In need, <clears throat> in need of help himself and with the promise of reward on top of it, Lobo hitches their ship to his bike and sets out across space with them in tow. Before we catch back up with our stretchy sleuth Ralph, we need to check in briefly with the House of Mysteries where Detective Chimp and his friends reach out to wake a sleeping Dr. Fate only to have the body melt in front of their very eyes. How this could have happened in a locked room is a mystery, so Chip calls on his buddy Ralph to lend a hand. Now, where we had left Ralph, he was in a very bad place, mid-breakdown, but he started to pull himself back together again and comes to give his take. There's a lot unknown, but one thing he's sure of, they're going to need some magical aid, and Chip needs to call in the Shadow Pack, which is a team of magic users. In the Egyptian desert, they perform a ritual around the Helmet of Fate, which ends up making contact with Ralph, telling him he's the next wielder of its power and can help him find what he seeks. Yearning for the opportunity, Ralph claims the helmet and drives away as the pack questions his sanity for thinking that the helmet had spoken to him. From there, he begins the next stage of his journey, leading him towards finding a gateway into hell. Much like his life, Booster's funeral is a sad affair as Skeets is forced to have the ceremony in Cincinnati due to no one else being willing to hold it, and literally nobody shows up. Clark is, of course, there in reporter mode because he's Clark. He'd have to be there for a fallen comrade, but other than that, there's just a handful of wannabe heroes who are hoping to be seen by the cameras that never showed up. As they prepare to head to the cemetery, Skeets makes a detour to Daniel Carter, Booster's ancestor, and claims it needs to talk to him later. At the meeting, Skeets knows no personal boundaries and is rifling through Dan's stuff for his apartment when he lays out his need. Time is broken, and Skeets believes that Rip Spunker holds the key, and it believes that Dan's a close enough genetic match to get into it. I have to admit I'm a bit puzzled at the logic to this as to why the security system needs to match, but I'll pass it off as, hey, that's comics. Daniel is reluctant, so Skeets leverages his desire to get into Luther's Everyman project by promising to make him a hero all on his own. 
Before we get to the bunker, though, we see the end of a battle between Weather Wizard and Supernova that ends with an assist from Wonder Girl, who we last saw fleeing as the Cult of Connors Temple burned down. She seems more in line with her old self, and clearly it's because she believes that Nova is Connor, reborn, though she gets no confirmation in this meeting. Meanwhile, once again in Arizona, Skeets holds the door to Hunter's bunker open, but this time gives Daniel some goggles so it can see what he sees too. In sight, it quickly becomes clear that Booster had lied to Skeets about what he'd found in sight, and as they scan everything, they come to the section with the arrows pointed at the one to blame. Here, though, the connection is made that it was fingering Skeets, not Booster, as the source of the problem. The doors close with the sound of doom, and the traps inside spring to life. Skeets abandons Dan to his fate, now sure that Hunter knows what he's up to, even though we don't at this point. Back out in space, Lobo leads them to his destination, a planet overrun with refugees where he's greeted as Archbishop Lobo of the First Celestial Church of the Triple Fish God. By a space dolphin, I might add. Our trio of lost heroes are absolutely baffled at what they've wandered into, but the promise of hot showers has them rolling with the punches. Afterwards, they're escorted to Lobo, passing through the miserable mass of beings, starving and burning their valuables for warmth. There, in an audience with his people, we see that Lobo is hanging onto his new vows by just the bare tip of his fingers. He lays out that none of them live here. This is just where they retreated when their systems were destroyed by the Stygian Passover led by the terrible Lady Styx. In a way, they fit right in as well as she's the one who placed a bounty on their heads to begin with. His followers growing extremely antsy at the prospect of him coming back later to get them. Things are coming to a head when the interstellar carrion comes in and starts devouring everything and everyone in sight. The panic that ensues creates chaos, with Lobo himself being devoured by the swarm and backs against the wall, ignoring Lobo's earlier warnings. Starfire uses the Eye of Ekron's emerald energy to destroy the threat. Relief is short-lived, however, as Lobo emerges from a pool of his own blood to tell him just how dumb that was. The Eye of Ekron was torn from the giant alien head of Ekron, and its use will bring him, obliterating anything in his path. They gots to go. While all that's going on, another lost member of the away team, the android Red Tornado's head, has appeared in Australia, where a man builds a new body for the machine that has yet to utter anything except the number 52. I think this would be a good point as any to explain the significance of 52. Yes, it's the name of the series, and yes, it speaks to the 52 weeks covered, but even deeper than that, this refers to the secret of the universe that's got everybody hunting for buddy and friends. The Crisis on Infinite Earths consolidated DC's multiverse into one core world, which was how it stayed right up until Alexander Luther starts splitting them apart in Infinite Crisis, now leaving the multiverse standing at the 52 realities. Still questioning his life, John Henry throws himself into heroics, making use of his new condition, which has grown to encompass his entire body now. It's after he assists with a burning building that Kayla runs up to him with news of a new discovery. Just like Lex gave people these abilities, he can shut them off at a whim, too. Elsewhere, Natasha pleads with Lex to allow her friend Eliza back on the team after being booted for using drugs, which sends the young speedster into joyous celebration now that she's back on the team. Later on after that, Infinity Inc. is sent on a mission to take down a behemoth who's the new blockbuster. Think big, strong, and tough, and you're getting the general picture. The battle commences with Lex in a control room directing everything as if he's producing a TV show, with Infinity Inc. coming out on top only to be confronted by the Teen Titans. They're taking issue with Luther's team taking on the name when Infinity Incorporated was originally the Children of the Justice Society. They see it as a sign of disrespect. As the teams argue back and forth, Blockbuster breaks free of his restraints and tears out of there, at which point Eliza, trajectory, speeds off in pursuit, catching the beast and squaring off. 
It's amidst the battle, we see Lex press a button and her powers fade, leaving her to die at the monster's hands. At the funeral, as Lex is giving a speech, spinning the story in his favor, Steel tries again to get through to Nat, but particularly in light of what he suspects just happened with Trajectory, but she's still blind to the truth, again turning her back on him, but Beast Boy offers the Titans help in any way they can. It's not long after this we see Infinity Inc. stopping a bank robbery where Lex introduces Trajectory's replacement, who's a knockout redhead designed to grab headlines and draw attentions away from you know, the death of their member. A brief pause as we see that Supernova has snuck into the Batcave and wanders around it looking at the various trophy it contains, particularly paying attention to the costume of the fallen Jason Todd and a rather odd-looking glove that wouldn't look out of place on a certain mad titan's hand. From there we see him playing his day watching Luther, which just drives the man insane. He's convinced it's Superman playing some game simply to taunt him, but we know better than that. Irritated, Lex orders yet another test run, only to once again be told he's not biologically compatible with his new process, which is something that eats at him nonstop. At the opening of a new school with his name, Eliza's dad charges him, yelling to all who will hear just how corrupt Lex is, while rightfully blaming him for her death. Security quickly drabs him away, where he's met by Steel, who wants to put their heads together to see what they can come up with. We meet back up with Doc Magnus, taking his pills that keep him from flying off the handle again as he's packing a bag preparing to go on the run. He's waited too long, however, as someone has co-opted his old metal men and sent them to collect him for their mad scientist party that we'll get to here in a second. He puts up a fight, actually making it out the front door before he's blasted in unconsciousness. He comes to as his transport. An 80-foot-tall robot emerges from the ocean and deposits him on an island paradise. Greeted by Morrow, he sees an island full of insane geniuses with the funding and resources to run wild with anything they can think of. All on a tropical resort, it's a strange and yet undeniably fascinating place. It's around here that we meet Whisper's boss, Bruno Mannheim. He's taken inner gain from his traditional mob style on to the point where he's developed an entire religion based around crime, following an encounter with Darkseid. After he kills a non-believer, he takes a trip to Oolong Island to check up on his investment with the man who is overseeing things, Chang Zhu. Now that's a slightly misleading description as he's a Wonder Woman foe sometimes known as Egg Fu, who's honestly looks a lot like the X-Men villain Mojo if you swapped his yellow body with a giant egg. I know it sounds weird, but and it honestly it really is, but just kind of run with it. Appearances aside, he's got things running smoothly, and they've made great strides with the weapons they're working on that they're calling the Four Horsemen. Other experiments run amok, as the place is just chaos when things get even worse with the arrival of an attractive female scientist, which sets all the others fighting for her attention. At the same time in Yemen, Renee and Charlie are tracked down Whisper Adair to the re-education camp the girl came from. As they watch her read from the Book of Crime, she calls forth one who has resisted the training as they bring out Amon, Isis's brother, and shatter his legs from the ankles up. Charlie restrains Montoya to keep her from committing suicide by jumping down amidst all the bad guys when they're spotted anyway. The chase by inner gains super beasts is halted by the arrival of Adam and Isis, who sweep the forces aside. As Isis mourns her inability to help, Adam again adds to his family, sharing his power with Amon, turning him into Osiris, freeing him from his mangled body. Reunited as one family, they then begin their plans to change the world, forging peace between their allies, which is a cause for concern as Amanda Waller asks his old friend Adam Smasher to lead a suicide squad to bring him in, or bring him down, whichever the case may be. 
In the meantime, we see the Black Adam family engage in heroics around the globe, aiding in a battle with a demon in Boston, actually starting to get some of the public behind them. The first steps taken, they finally part ways with Renee and Charlie, who they drop off outside Nanda Parbat, where they meet up with Charlie's friend Tot and his old trainer Richard Dragon, who Charlie says is about to take Renee to school. A short stop with Jean Jean, the Martian Manhunter, and a memorial for Booster sees him assuring his departed friend that Blue Beetle has been avenged with Checkmate eradicated from the Earth. Which isn't exactly true, as Alan Scott has recently been approached to, you know, just kind of take it over. From there, we move on to some new heroes. While the Trinity is indeed gone, not everyone thinks the world can afford to get by without defenders, so the new Firestorm tries to set up a new Justice League. It's made up of C-list heroes and the mentally unwell ambush bug, and even Green Arrows gives them the advice that it's just better to walk away from the whole thing before somebody gets hurt. They ignore that advice, though, but when they attempt to spring into action in response to a disturbance, they're met with 30 everymen jumping in to help fight the pirates and cyborgs that popped up out of nowhere. Reaching the heart of the ruckus, Firestorm finds Skeets there, who had planned on using this to draw Hunter out, and failing that, turns its systems to slaughtering all the ex inexperienced heroes around him. We then rejoin the Adam family, coming to dinner at this Dr. Savannah's house. He is, of course, missing, as we discussed earlier, and while his wife is well aware of the history between them, she just donated $20 million to Condox Children's Hospital to ask for their help in finding them. Adam reluctantly agrees that he'll consider it, but Osiris has had enough of this and storms out of the house. Things barely settle down after this when a giant crocodile man, no, not Killer Croc, comes crashing into the dinner table. In the commotion, it manages to burst through the walls, escaping into the night where it happens upon Osiris. It explains that Dr. Savannah had experimented on and tormented him for years and years on end. The story of the horrors he'd undergone paralleled what Osiris himself had just recently lived through, and here forms a bond that's going to play a pivotal role in things later. We're going to close out this week with Ralph's journey through the underworld, marching on as he gathers various mystical artifacts he's going to need in the end. Before they leave the realm, the Helmet of Fate guides him to the old Justice League foe Felix Foss, who's found himself trapped in hell. After having repeatedly sold and bought back his soul in a never-ending quest for more power, he devalued it enough that he attempted to bargain with the demon Neron with a soul that was not his own. Aware of the deception, Neron had instead trapped his pathetic soul here in the fiery bowels of hell. The warning about the seriousness of what they're attempting taken to heart, they travel back to Earth where Ralph is going to make his first bargain. And with that, we are halfway through this rather sizable run. I have to admit that it's taken longer than I thought it would to plot everything out, but I'm having a lot of fun tracing all the various branches, and I hope you're enjoying it too. As I said, part two will be out at some point this Monday, so you don't have to wait too long for the conclusion. As I mentioned before, please reach out to let me know what you think about this more focused format for the show through any of the means we discussed about earlier. And if you have time, please leave me a review wherever you happen to be listening to me from. Thank you for hanging out again this week, and remember, with great knowledge comes great responsibility. I'll see you next week.